0: Happy Happy to hear you,
1: today. I see it's exactly 7 a.m. Yes, that's right, your time, 10 a.m. my time, so it's early for you, mid morning for me. Can you hear me okay? I can hear you just fine. Good. I'm going to introduce you to our listeners. Uh, we're going to be talking about your book, uh, The Psychologies of Political Exile, from Ovid to the Dalai Lama. Now, I'm going to call this, because this podcast is called A Life and Biography, I don't know if you'll agree with me or not, but I'm going to call it a sort of group biography. That's right. It is a a group of
0: people who are related by the fact that they were subjected to exile, forced out of their home, uh, their friends, their spouses sometimes, and they all had that in common, and yet each one reacted differently. So this is a, a sort of psychological set of profiles in biography, uh, and it, it, even to use the Kennedy profiles in courage, because when you're uh, put into exile, it takes a tremendous amount of courage to survive. Everything you've known has uh, gone away. And you may be as in a territory that's hostile to you. You may have been forced to be in a particular place, or you may get to choose the place where you're being exiled. But still, it's a tremendous wrench. And as I thought about it, I think uh, it really shows, in terms of a biography of a person, that exile, dispossession and displacement from a place, is one of the most wrenching things that can ever happen. Just, just think of if, uh, if you're deprived of a parent when you're a child, or even as, as an adult, a parent dies. Uh, how wrenching that is. But in a way, a whole life, previous life dies when you're forced into exile. So we have different psychological responses by different temperaments, uh, but all... Uh, Uh, an essential part of the biography of making a new life or making a life that at least uh, adjusts uh, to the new circumstances. And uh, the the great Hawaiian singer uh, uh, has a song called Starting All Over Again. It's going to be rough, but we're going to make it. (laughs) Yes. But he does make it. Uh, But the seven people in the book each one
1: made something uh, and lost something. Quite, quite true. Before we go further, I wanna just tell listeners who your subjects are, I'm gonna read them, and then I'm gonna read a little bit about your biography and you can tell me what I leave out, okay? Okay. So, So your subjects, and I love the range of the subjects. And one of the great things I think about a group biography is, in, especially in this case, is you're grouping individuals who some people might not ne- necessarily think, well, how do those go together? Of course, your title is connecting them and your, your themes are connecting them. But just, just on the face of it, people wonder, well, how do they get into the book? So let me just tell listeners who's in here. Ovid, Dante, Napoleon, Pushkin, Trotsky, Einstein, and the Dalai Lama. Now, that's quite a crew. (laughs) Now, I'm going to read just a little bit from the biography that's uh, in your book, uh, The Psychologies of Political Exile. The Psychologies of Political Exile from Ovid to the Dalai Lama is Jay Martin's 33rd book. His various earlier works include biography, criticism, autobiography and memoir, travel, Politics, History, Studies in Black, Native American, and Hispanic Cultures, Sociology, Psychoanalysis and Psychiatry, Neuroscience and Neurobiology, Psychoanalytic Theories of Politics, as well as a book of short stories, two produced plays, and a volume of poetry. His works have been translated into French, German, Japanese, and Portuguese, And I also happen to know you're writing a novel. Now, my question for you, Jay, is why on earth do you think you're qualified to write this book?
0: (laughs) Well, nobody's really qualified to write a book like this. Just imagine that in order to uh, write about these seven people, I had to become as expert as the experts on each one, have been. So if I wasn't as qualified to write about Ovid authoritatively, the the chapter would fail. Uh, people would say, well, he's missed this and he's missed this about the biography, and he's uh, stressed too much about the uh, exile and so on. So I had to learn to be somewhat authoritative on each one of these, and then to focus upon what most of the experts on any one of these persons, um, what most of the experts missed in balancing a biography. We don't want to center a biography, a standard biography, into one subject like exile. Right. But thereby we miss something that might be the most important thing in in a life or in a phase of the life. Uh, and, and therefore, what I'm trying to do here is to say, for these seven people, their exile was the crucial thing that happened in their life. And a standard biography uh, will miss that by trying to spread evenly over a whole of a life instead of, in many cases, not looking at uh the the seminal uh central thing that happened that made all
1: the difference in the person's life that's right yeah now there's something else you do uh and really jay it's too much you also do some of the translating (laughs) yes (laughs) well as it happened
0: of the languages that i know i can read about nine of them um and, that's, that's seven um, more than I can do. <laughs> <laughs> the one that I know best in German is um, uh, in Einstein, everything has been long ago translated into English, so I didn't have to use that language. The language I knew nothing about is, of course, Tibetan with regard to the Dalai Lama. But uh, as it turns out, again, from a very early period in uh, uh, the Dalai Lama's life, he knew English and he speaks in English, he writes in English. And so I didn't, in this case, I didn't have to know Tibetan, but for the other ones, I I tried to look carefully at the translation and compare it to um, uh, my reading of uh, the original language with Ovid, of course, Latin Dante, Italian, Napoleon, French. And I lived in Russia for a a period of time. And so uh, uh, I was forced to uh, acquire Russian. So with Pushkin and Trotsky, it was uh, very helpful, especially with the complicated pieces written by Pushkin. To be able to look at the original was important.
1: Yes. Now I'm guessing because you were doing some of the translating, and even though there are, you know, in the case of Ovid, for, Ovid, for example, there are other translations, given the fact that you're writing a book and you're you're looking at Ovid from a certain angle, the fact that you're also doing the translation gives it maybe more of a pointed quality? Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes sense because
0: I'm uh, unlike, again, now I talked a minute ago about biographers. Uh, for translators, they're not focusing upon the subtle elements, let's say, in my case, of exile and how the language uh, congregates around the feeling of being dispossessed. They're looking for the translation of the whole and, uh, again, kind of unifying um, the whole translation instead of picking up and seeing special things that uh, one who's looking at special aspects of life, and especially crucial ones, uh, can
1: do. Yeah, I can see that. I wanted to, since I've been talking about your, your own translation, I wanted to read something um, of uh, Ovid. One of the nice things about your book is there are some extended passages of quotation where you really get the flavor of the subject that you're you're writing about. I think that's terribly important. I also think that's a way you were talking earlier about, you know, experts on Ovid or Trotsky or whoever it is is are gonna be looking at this and say, well, he missed this and he missed that. In a way, you're, you're helping uh, the readers be experts, too, by including some of these longer passages that you quote, uh, and I want to quote just a few lines because, uh, for selfish reasons, because they reminded me of one of my biographical subjects, and it's a way of showing listeners, I think, that, that these seven figures are connected to so many other human experiences and other times, so this is Ovid. A man can lose his life in different ways. It bleeds out or flies away in that last gasp. But to walk away from a life, I have no idea whether it's harder or not, but I cannot suppress the dread desire still to die, that the sufferings stop. I never had anything like it happen, so that survival was something to be ashamed of. Those last words that survival could be something to be ashamed of. It seems to me puts a whole new light on suicide.
0: Yeah, think of, think of the whole uh, tradition of Romans uh, committing suicide, uh, running on their swords, uh, Antony, uh, Brutus, and, and so on. I was, I was really picking up on that um, part of Roman courage to kill yourself and saying, I didn't have the courage to do that, but something else had to sustain me than dying. Maybe uh, I was a coward for not dying in such an excruciating circumstance as as I found myself in in exile, but maybe I can live and make something else out of it.
1: And of course, what he made was poetry. Okay, now here comes the selfish part. the thing that I'm interested in. And people often ask, I've written several books on Sylvia Plath, You know, why did she commit suicide?
0: Yeah.
1: Um, and part of it is for Ovid's reason, the shame of surviving. And this really struck home with me when I was reading a biography of um, Newton Arvin, who was one of her teachers at Smith College.
0: Yes. And Arvin
1: was for much of his life suicidal and came to the brink many, many times Uh, And that took a tremendous toll on his friends. Uh, They went through so much anguish propping him up. Plath knew who had attempted suicide once as a very young girl. um, She knew what the consequences were of surviving and being institutionalized. And the other thing about her that connects in a sense with your figures is she studied at Cambridge, the Greeks and the Romans. She knew all about the Roman way of suicide and the kind of nobility that could possibly be attached to that act. And that's so different from the modern, for most people anyway, the modern view of suicide, which is that it is shameful, that surviving is not shameful, suicide is shameful. Mm -hmm. And I think your book makes us think about that in entirely different terms. Right, I think all of the people here had to think
0: uh, you need courage to survive uh, and that surviving is the heroic part rather than uh, bolstering up the idea of suicide as if that's a a rounding out of a life. I think for the Romans, it was, well, my life is now uh, uh, expressing defeat, Antony, Brutus, and so on. And therefore, I sh- need to bring my life to a close. Hmm. It much, takes much more courage to survive and, uh, again, to start all over again.
1: Yeah, very much so, yeah. Another concept, and I, I know from our correspondence, you know this, I'm very interested, and uh, in, you talk about this in another one of your books, fictive personalities. It really comes to the fore when you just in your Napoleon chapter, where he's in a sense living through literature. Yes, a poor uh,
0: Corsican,
1: not really uh,
0: recognized as a French citizen, a secondary citizen, uh, a poor a person who goes to military academy where uh, all the other people there tend to be aristocrats or wealthy, and are going to make a career in the army. And uh, he's not wealthy, his family isn't noble. Uh, and, and so how do, you, how do you find a sort of basis or a center for imagining your own uh, future success and special uh, heroism and so on? And so he aligned himself very early. He was a voracious reader. Uh, always carrying around books and even sometimes in lulls of battle uh, reading a novel uh, yeah. or a work of history. But he's, uh, he identified with Julius Caesar and, and he fought his battles, of course, over many of the same territories that Caesar did. And finally, seeing himself as a kind of uh, uh, avatar, of Julius Caesar. At the very end of his life, he writes a book about Caesar's battles and how he would have fought them. And uh, he ha- ends up aligning uh, with Caesar, even in hopeless exile s- sickness and old age. And so the book becomes his triumph as it was for Ovid and and for some of the others
1: as well. Yeah, there's there's a paragraph in your Napoleon essay, Napoleon chapter, where I think you're doing what, what biographers do. That is, on the one hand, you're talking about Napoleon's character, the kind of person he was, and you're talking about his reading and the precedence that Napoleon was relying on. But then we're also talking about contingency. We're talking about events and the shaping of events. I want to just, it's a short paragraph. I want to I read this because it it's nice, it's, it's uh, one of the problems often with using psychology or psychoanalysis is it's, it's, it's just sort of applied to the character uh, and the, the biographical narrative gets lost and you don't, get, you don't lose that. Here's the paragraph. When he was forced into his first exile in Elba, his military identifications were still fully alive and urgent. He believed he would return to Paris victoriously as Caesar had returned to Rome. Very likely, the necessity he experienced to enact his model of return rapidly led to his mistake of returning from Elba too quickly. On another two or three months of delay would have ripened his plans and also given the French a yet more bitter taste of the old tyranny of the Bourbons and their contempt for French citizens. I love that mixture of, you know, the, the character, the person, but also the shaping of events and how Napoleon's reading them and in a sense, misreading them.
0: Yeah, in the case of of Napoleon, as in the case of others, the adoption of a fictive personality, that is, I'll see myself uh, uh, through another person's life, sometimes from the media, sometimes from history, as in the case of Napoleon, has a gain, that is, it gives you Uh, For someone who has uh, a deficient sense of self, it gives you an identity. I'll be like Napoleon. The way that Don Quixote uh, took up an identity of the Knights of the Middle Ages and the code of chivalry in an age when chivalry was no longer there. So Don Quixote, though he looks daffy, he's uh, a representative in his century, of um, a chivalric way of looking at women, Dulcinea, uh, and so forth, and a a way of looking at uh, the attempt to uh, achieve virtue, and as the play has it, to achieve an impossible dream of being chivalric in a century when chivalry is ended. But it has a downside too. So for Napoleon, Caesar came back and was triumphant until he was assassinated, of course. And, and so Napoleon was burning with the desire to come back as rapidly as he could uh, in imitation of Caesar, and he, his fictive identification sort of uh, misled him. And, and it did later on, too, for his second exile when he believed, well, the British whom he had defeated in many, many battles. The British will welcome me to Britain because I'm a distinguished person. Yes. And (laughs) they sent him to the last place on earth where you could escape from in St. Helena, uh, a place that was distant from any territory or any land. No, though there were lots of plots um, to bring Napoleon to the United States, which is what he intended, it would have been interesting to have uh, Napoleon, Julius Caesar come and make an empire in the west of the United States. It would have been possible. Or to liberate countries in South America, to liberate them to come under the rule of Napoleon. All of those plots failed because the British hated him so much. They wanted to put him permanently into exile and never to return. I think that uh, you, you mentioned in, institutionalized persons. I think Robert Lowell, I believe, was um, institutionalized at in McLean 16 different times. Yeah, a tremendous and number. Each time he came out, he, he started a new... A mode of poetry and he allowed his institutionalized self to recover into poetry and then as the poetry started to diminish he was back in the institution again to create a, a new poetic self
1: yeah it's an it's an extraordinary story of his in and out and his resilience and uh, and he was a you know he he was a, Terrific case. I mean, tough case, um, and a wife who stuck with him over so many years. It's 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 quite a remarkable story. I think people listening to you and reading your book, uh, even if they have no particular interest in these seven figures, and it's unlikely. I think almost anyone is going to be interested in some of these figures. Um, but we have a lot of bi- I know I have a lot of biographers listening to this podcast. And I think as they listen to you and, and they read your book, they're gonna say, oh, this subject or that subject I work on, I can see that, I can, I can relate to that, I can identify with that. Um, I think the the book has a you know a broad application. It's certainly certainly I'm using it in my work on Plath.
0: Well, you're making me think of so many things as you talk. Uh, that one of them is a fictive personality, which uh, is more widespread than one would think. Empty selves who need to import another self into their being. Um, That Lowell's death was, uh, generally speaking, sort of medically um, uh, not to be uh, gathered, but Lowell had a fiction.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: He thought his parents uh, had both died at, a, at the age of 60. And that starting around the age of 59, <laughs> he started to say, well, I only have one year left. Mm-hmm. And he simply died in a taxi from the airport uh, when he became the age he thought his parents had died at. It turned out he was mistaken. He could have lived another year even with that fiction because his father, I believe his father <laughs> didn't die until 61. Yeah, but The fictive personality closed his self down. And that may be true of someone, you've, you've also written about um, Marilyn Monroe. Yes. Uh, I think that uh, the question is, did she commit suicide? Was there some other uh, explanation for her death? But I had, uh, when I was, uh, wrote that book and I was on the Oprah show, uh, Oprah brought a Marilyn Monroe fictive personality for me to analyze along with several oh others. Oh, my, yeah. And it turned out, as uh, she would say, well, if I, if I didn't have my Marilyn hair on and my Marilyn dress and my uh, Marilyn makeup and so on, and the doorbell rang, and if I went to open the door, nobody would see me because I was mm. Marilyn only alive when I was Marilyn. And con- contrary-wise, but very similar at the same time, there was a Marilyn Monroe fictive personality in England who naturally uh, had to commit suicide because she believed Marilyn committed suicide. And in order to become truly Marilyn, she had to kill herself.
1: Yeah, it reminds me, that, and this, this, is, this is not something new. This goes back to The Sorrows of Werther, which you read about, too. Uh-huh. Yeah, very much so. I should mention the title of the other book you're referring to. It's Who Am I This Time? Uncovering the Fictive Personality, which I read from cover to cover because it applies to so much of my work. Yeah, I want to say something, too, uh,
0: uh, that was prompted by some of the things you just recently said. Uh, just to say, in terms of the psychologies of each of these figures, uh, I think Ovid clearly was in clinical depression. He was sentenced to exile in the worst possible, farthest outpost of Roman civilization that was still uh, savage. He lost all the prestige he had in Rome. Uh, his works were no longer to be even owned by people. Uh, And it was, as it were, to be obliterated and uh, that can easily go into clinical depression. I was put here unjustly and unfairly. And he saw himself as like Odysseus, exiled for uh, all that long period of time, 10 years. And as Caesar, as like Poseidon, Poseidon kept trying to get uh, Caesar uh, trying to get uh, Odysseus killed. Athena was protecting him. But he appealed to Augustus the way Odysseus could have appealed to, uh, uh, to Poseidon, to say, y- you have uh, the possibility of allowing me to come back home. And if so, then my exile will... Uh, have been run out as many other Romans who were exiled were allowed to come back. So that was never going to be the case. And eventually all he had to had was to write poetry about it. No, fortunately, he had a fabulous memory and that wasn't erased by depression. So no books, nothing else. And yet his uh, grasp of mythology and uh, poetry and so on, Eventually, he learned the language of the savages who were in that area, now Romania's Constanta, and he started to write poetry in the language of his place. It's, it's an
1: astonishing recovery. Yes. Um, it, it, it Exile can do all sorts of things to people. It's not necessarily negative at all. Um, I'm thinking of your your last subject the Dalai Lama I'm going to read this brief paragraph because it's stunning in his exile he came of age had he never left Chinese occupied Tibet he would have been the subject of a few paragraphs and a minor footnote in Asian history in exile he became free of Tibet of outworn rituals and formalities of China exile endowed him with the world
0: Yeah, he became a citizen of the world. We would have only remembered him if we remembered him at all. I think few people remember who who the other Dalai Lamas were before the 14th one, (coughs) excuse me, himself. But everybody knows the Dalai Lama because uh, we would have remembered him only as a name connected with the 14th Dalai Lama if he had stayed in Tibet. if the China, So the Chinese invasion was a terribly wrenching thing. He tried to stay, tried to stay. And eventually um, he left with an excruciating journey out of China uh, to get to India and to reestablish an, a new life. And now we know him uh, as a person who's, in his uh, mid-80s, and who still is active and still influential, and so forth. So exile gave him a life. I think that was true of Dante, too. We would have remembered Dante uh, as a politician in Florence, uh, had his own political party triumph there, uh, and as a distinguished uh, writer of sonnets to a, uh, a loved one, the same way that Petrarch is remembered, but his sonnets were not as great as P- Petrarch's. Uh, but in exile, Dante was pushed from one place to another, forced to be a beggar, in essence, of on aristocrats. They would take him in. And the only thing he could pay back, uh, sometimes he was forced into being a sort of servant in the houses where he resided but the only thing he could pay back was to write the greatest poem of his century and to say, like Coriolanus, you tried to exile me, Florence, but I'm exiling you. So at the end of his life, when the Divine Comedy was, or the Comedia was finished, and Florence finally relented and said, you can come back without conditions, he, uh, stayed in
1: Ravenna and then went back to <laughs> yeah. Florence. Yeah, it's like Joseph Brodsky, the same thing. He had the opportunity to return to Russia, but he, he turned him down.
0: Always a dangerous thing to return to Russia, and it could have been quite dangerous to return to Florence. After all, they had voted twice, but if he ever showed up on uh, soil of uh, governed by Florence that first he would be uh, burned at the stake and second he'd be beheaded or, or maybe vice versa. Uh, so uh, maybe there was some danger to it, but at that point, he was, he was back as a, the person who represented Renaissance glory uh, more than any other person in his century did. The, the triumph of a great uh, poem he didn't call it divine, we did
1: later, but it was a
0: divine work.
1: Yes, yeah. You know, uh, it's often been said a biography, especially by historians who, who say the focus on the individual leaves out so much of history, there isn't enough history in it. And I think you addressed that question uh, in a sense indirectly in your conclusion um, from individual exile to the displacement and dispossession of mass groups the central crisis of our time. I think it's a really important part of your book because people always talk about these days, people, many people anyway, talk about immigration as a problem. I suppose it's a problem, but it's also an opportunity. And I wish speaking of politics, that politicians and public figures would speak about this as an opportunity Uh, Because your exiles, uh, in many cases, uh, took advantage of the opportunity. What you say here is the seven famous individuals whose psychological responses to political exile are examined in this book experience depression, anxiety, confusion, identity diffusion, feelings of oppression, narcissistic strivings, creative release, and sometimes the ecstasy of freedom and exile. Today, these same psychological responses are experienced not just individually, but in groups, families, communities, and companions, walking the same paths away from lost homelands. Exile was once chiefly experienced by individuals. In a globalized world, it is mostly groups that are displaced in shared dispossession. I think a lot more attention has to be paid to that.
0: I do too. I mean, I'm convinced that we look at the, the crisis of inflation, or we look at the crisis of the market going up or down, we look at the crisis of crime in the cities, whatever it may be, but the immense crisis that we fail to see, and I think, uh, as I wrote, that it's the crisis of our time, is that millions of people are dispossessed now, and they're uh, they're dispossessed in groups for the most part. So there are a million Syrians on the on the march. Uh, people from Venezuela forced into uh, to choose exile because the situations are so bad. People in North Ari- Africa who crowd into the uh, southern Italy uh, on uh, makeshift boats, sometimes dying or drowning. Uh, People all over the world are on the march, and even as we can look at these seven people and see how it manifestly changed their lives to be exiled, when we think that there are millions of people on the march now, having given up their home, their sacred places, the rituals that they were accustomed to, sometimes giving up... For the most part, giving up families, mothers, fathers, uh, ancestors, and so on. And coming to strange new places where everything is different, including the language, everything is different. And they have to try to both hold on to what they lost and what they're now facing uh, to adjust to. It makes for a world... I think we haven't recognized a world that that's in immense change psychologically, by the immense number of people who leave a place, and the immense number of people who are at the places where they come.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's the only political leader I know of who has had any grasp to this day has had any grasp with this is Angela Merkel, who took in a million people, Mm -hmm. and at the time she was criticized. You know, this is. You can't do that. Well, not only did she do it, many of those people pay taxes now. Yes, right. You know, I mean, it, it, uh, the, the the limited um, perceptions of of what's going on now are, are really striking.
0: She was a you might say a, a semi exile in eastern Germany. That's right. Vacation. So now she came into a different uh, a different Germany than the one that she knew then she had to make a bridge between her old life and her new one. And I think that probably disposed her to be able to see an, uh, an immigrant to a new place can make a success. On the other hand, the tremendous upheaval uh, by uh, the massive numbers of people who have come into Germany, uh, into Italy... Uh, into Colombia and South America, from Venezuela, uh, a tremendous amount of of resentment, difficulties, uh, uh, ghettoizing of the new immigrants. So both the people who uh, take in the immigrants and the immigrants themselves are being radically changed
1: yeah, I think it, 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 and it makes a difference with, with who the leader is and what the public discourse is, how the language is shaped again. You know, is it a problem? Is it an opportunity? Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Of the people that I look at uh, in this book, it was uh, uh, Trotsky held to a, uh, an important figure, maybe only secondary to Lenin and maybe more important than Lenin for his activities, held to an ideology that the dictatorship of the proletariat was going to uh, rule the world. And he had a theory of history that uh, he was at the pinnacle of the peak and the end of history. So that when he was exiled, he never accepted that he was not going to be called back very soon. Stalin would be overthrown Uh, uh, the... uh, uprising of Trotskyism, Trotskyites would prevail, and the false revolution led by Stalin would be uh, abrogated, and he would be back in power. So he lived decades of his life in exile, never understanding that uh, uh, history had gone on beyond the revolution, and that Uh, history was now in the phase of bureaucracy and that Stalin was the perfect leader and Trotsky was a past figure. And yet in his great book about the Russian Revolution, again, he uh, did something that uh, will, I think, uh, has lived for a long time, that book, and will continue to be the best book on the revolution and some would argue the best uh, history, work of history, so uh, of, of his period. And and so he made a triumph, but it wasn't the triumph he wanted. Yes, that's right, yeah. Is and there something
1: also, I should have asked you that I didn't?
0: Well, uh, I, w- I wanted to say, uh, let me go back for a minute sure. to say, Ovid was uh, clinical depression, Dante was outraged at Florence for exiling him, and he wouldn't have written the Divine Comedy, which took um, several years, many years to write, if he hadn't been fed by the outrage of having to take revenge upon Florence for exiling him. Napoleon was his, uh, as I said before and you said, uh, saved by fiction and destroyed by fiction. Mm-hmm. Uh, Pushkin, uh, we would have remembered Pushkin probably only as a, one of the minor uh, writers in uh, Russia of his period. If he hadn't gone into exile, he's mostly a satirist, uh, mostly a sort of rebellious teenager, even after his teenage years, in Moscow, frivolous Moscow, where he was an aristocrat. Hmm and his family older than the Romanovs. And he knew the czars perfectly, visit them, went to the czarist school and so on. But it was only when he was exiled into the savage parts of Russia in the Caucasus that he came to see that there was a much uh, deeper, more profound life than the life of the frivolous uh, Muscovite and that, he could write about the savage life and then return to a Russian subject in Evgeny uh, Yonegin with the profundity of what he had learned from the savage places that he had previously no idea about and I think that uh, Yonegin is probably the certainly the greatest poem written in Russia uh, and the influence upon all the subsequent writers. Uh, but, pass, but probably the best poem read, written in the 19th century only understood uh, with difficulty. It's an immensely great poem. Mm-hmm. Einstein was a personality who was in exile from the beginning. Uh, imagine uh, any six, 16-year-old here that we know who would say, I'm gonna renounce my United States citizenship and move to Mexico, let's say. (laughs) 16, he hated Germany and authoritarianism and any quenching of his utter freedom so much, he resigned his German citizenship. He had no citizenship uh, and therefore no rights in the world until uh, he moved to Switzerland and eventually got citizenship there and, and there uh, he achieved his great scientific uh, breakthroughs in 1905 and consolidated them for the next 15 years. And eventually when he moved to America, his scientific career basically was over. We, mm-hmm. we welcome him as a citizen, but not as a scientist to America. He pursued a, a hopeless uh, scientific quest for almost 40 years. And with utter failure, and in some way, he turned to social discourse and social commentary in order to have uh, continue to be engaged in the world.
1: Yes, yeah, yeah, it's like a second career, yeah. You know?
0: Yeah, and so, and, and of course the Dalai Lama has uh, taken uh, uh, the opportunity of uh, of becoming a citizen of the world uh, and it's spoken before the United Nations and before the United States Congress and so on. Tibet is still to, as it was, still under Chinese domination.
1: Yeah.
0: Uh, but the Dalai Lama brought everything uh, that was good about Tibet, its spirituality and so on, uh, with him. And he made it, he got a, a world citizenship, as it were. Uh, but he also changed the world in some sense. I, when I say to somebody I've written about the Dalai Lama, they say, oh, I went to see him once. And it, <laughs> it was a profound experience for me. And it made me think about spirit and so on. So I think that uh, the world gave him a gift and he gave the world a gift. Uh, and uh, that's what makes his, his particular plight he was an unruly person when he was a child, a fearful, doubtful, scared by things. And eventually he became uh, uh, a, a perfect Buddhist um, contemplative who acts in the world in the same way that uh, those great Buddhists who have uh, achieved Nirvana like Guan Yin stay in the world in order to help people. I, it,
1: what... Yeah, the way you describe him, and there is this reciprocity, this giving and taking. He might be the most balanced figure in your book. What do you think? Oh, well,
0: yeah, he is. Uh, even, even Pushkin, who achieved the writing of Onegin, uh, was still uh, marked in his, outside his writing by a certain amount of frivolity. he uh, Before he got married, he made a list of the women he had seduced. It was one of his <laughs> great occupations. And he had the list numbers about 300 mm. women he had seduced. And now he gets married and finds himself um, the subject of his wife having what he believed to be an affair with a military officer. And so the tables are turned and Pushkin acted with the same uh, teenage foolishness as he had once had before he went into the Savage Caucasus, and challenged this mi- military officer to a duel. Um, and of course, the military officer killed him.
1: Mm. Well, uh, that reminds me of among other things that recommend your book is, there are a lot of great stories in it.
0: Yeah, uh, again, when you focus on exile, uh, the, the unfolding of the personality is right there uh, before your eyes. Um, in, a, uh, in a standard biography, uh, the, the person as in all of his phases is going to be before your eyes, but here, the intensity of the starting all over again is in every part of, in every chapter, uh, in every paragraph, is there in front of you as the human struggle uh, to become new. Yes. Remember, Ezra Pound wrote a book about Make It New, and that was his one of his themes, new poetry, new music, new painting. And he was a great proponent of all of those. Uh, but it's not so easy to re- remake yourself.
1: No, no. Well, I really, I recommend your book to listeners. It's been a pleasure talking to you, Jay. Well, it's been a pleasure
0: to talk to you and to your listeners. And I, I, I want to say, uh, I hope that they will, my, my own, uh, I hope they'll, if any, read the book, that, that they'll also see the book as a preface to being involved uh, themselves psychologically in dealing with the crisis of our time. My original, as soon as I finished this book, my original idea was to go to uh, uh, Syria, Germany, uh, Italy, North Africa, Venezuela, and so on. I could deal with all those languages there uh, with a little bit of brushing up on Arabic, uh, and to write a book about the immense exile of groups. And that's coming. Good. Face that. And so yeah. I say to your audience in, uh, and to you in farewell, think about the world
1: in turmoil from dispossession. Yes, yeah. Well, I'll, everyone, please stay tuned. Thanks again, Jay. Take care. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye-bye.